Welcome to episode number 69 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church here in Lewis County, Washington. We are a Reformed and Evangelical Church in Centralia, Washington, and we are thrilled to bring you the audio from our Lord's Day worship that took place on October 17th of 2021. In this audio, you'll hear the wonderful preaching from Tyler Hatcher, as well as some of the other uh, parts of our uh, Reformed liturgy that takes place every Lord's Day. Uh, I hope you enjoy the audio, and I hope you come and join us for Lord's Day worship. We are the first Reformed church to have uh, successfully planted in Lewis County, and we are looking for the glories of the Reformation to absolutely take Lewis County by storm. We have a heart for our community. We have a heart for the this area, and we want to see Christ's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So enjoy the sermon, enjoy listening in, and um, come join us on this uh, coming up Sunday. We would love to have you join us and uh, enjoy the audio. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You pray with me. Father in heaven, we are coming into your presence because Jesus has already passed through the heavens. Thank you that Christ can sympathize with our weakness and yet is without sin. May we receive mercy and find grace this morning in our time of need. Amen. Amen. In the second epistle of John, which is where we're reading if you're doing the To the Word Bible reading challenge, quick plug for that. If you don't have one of these, grab one of these and join us. This has been a glorious uh, reading plan, but if you were reading this week through the, through the Bible reading challenge, you would have found yourself in the gospel, uh, in the epistles um, of John. And in the second epistle of John, the apostle closes his letter that was written to the elect lady and her children with the following statement. He said, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. John has much still to write to these beloved saints. He's not finished. The first two letters he's written so far haven't begun to cover all the things he would like to teach them. And yet, he openly states that he would rather not write them any more letters. Instead, he tells them that he would like to be with them face to face so that they might talk. He then adds to this statement the highly relevant fact that when we meet face to face, it brings joy. And in fact, it makes our joy complete. When we gather together face to face, something is happening that simply can't happen within any other setting. Live streaming, while helpful when sick, I was thankful for it last week, Live streaming isn't at all the same as being face-to-face with the saints. 
uh, radio, TV, books, newsletters, podcasts. Those are all well and good in their proper place. However, the joy that is made complete happens when we are together. This is, in part, why we are commanded not to forsake the gathering together of the saints of the Lord. No gathering often equals no joy. On top of this, we are people, and people learn by watching. It's been said that 90% of what parents teach their kids is caught, not taught. To catch the right kind of teaching, that is to learn a lesson the teacher was not explicitly teaching, one must be together and face to face. This is true in the home, and this is true in the church as well. We are here together face to face so that we might bring God glory, so that we might worship him in the beauty of holiness, and that our joy might be complete. But in order to do this, we are faced with the humbling fact that we are sinners and that we must first confess our sins and ask the king to forgive us in his mercy. Scripture says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 13. These are the words of God. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets." that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to receive it, to hear it speak to us. Would you speak to the hearts of these people here? Would you open their ears, open their hearts to receive your gospel and and know how to apply it to their lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we continue to work through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a couple of reminders that I think you are probably familiar with by now as we continue to work through this. Remember that the first few chapters of the book of Ephesians are basically Paul setting out the truths 
that need to be believed. These are the things that God's people, and specifically the Ephesian churches that Paul is writing to, need to believe first and foremost. It's the foundation on which then Paul will build the last half of his letter. The last half of his letter is full of exhortations and commands and calls to the people to do certain things, to live certain ways, but it all has to be grounded on the gospel. You can't change your life. You can't change the way you act. You can't become a better person if you are not standing on the truth of God. If you are standing on the truth of God, then by his grace and by the power of his spirit, you can walk in obedience. And God does sanctify you and make you more and more like Christ. But it has to be grounded upon the truths of the gospel and primarily the grace of God. And it's this grace of God that continues to distract Paul as he's writing to the Ephesians. You'll notice uh, already, we saw in chapter 1, he breaks off from explaining the gospel and he he launches into this prayer for the Ephesians. And then he gets into chapter 2 and he talks about the grace of God, how we've been saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves, it's only the gift of God. And he goes on to explain how the Gentiles have been brought in and this is a, a key message that Paul is giving to the Ephesians. The Ephesians were largely Gentiles. They were not Jewish. They had been outside of the covenant people of God, but through the preaching of the gospel, they had been brought in. This is the glorious truth of the gospel for the Gentiles. They have been included in God's family, and there is salvation for them through Jesus, the Messiah. They have then equal access to the Father with the Jews. And that's very important to Paul. Previously, in the old covenant, the Jews came into the temple. The Jews came before God with their sacrifices and offerings. And there was a way in which Gentiles could come as well, but it wasn't equal access. There was a particular, um, being part of the particular covenant people of God was the way that you would come near and draw near to God. But no longer. It is no longer a specific specific group of people. Rather, all of the peoples of the world are invited and called to come before God and we enter into his covenant people not by the sign of circumcision but rather the sign of baptism. This is all the context then for this message that Paul is bringing to the Ephesians. The blood of Christ has brought near those who had, who had been far off. And so then as we move into this section in chapter 3, it is, it is funny to read Paul here because he's not a very good grammarian. He, he breaks off his sentences in the middle and never finishes them, and there's all kinds of fragments, but it's because he's, he's distracted by the grace of God. He's distracted by the mystery that has been revealed and entrusted to him. Paul begins, if you look at verse 1, with what seems to have, it seems that he, that he was going to offer up a prayer for the Ephesians in verse 1. He begins, for this reason, having, having declared that the Gentiles have been brought near, that we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father, that, that the Gentiles and Jews together are being built up into God's holy temple. For, the, for that reason, with all of this in mind, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you, he never finishes that sentence. But if you jump ahead and look at verse 14, he sort of starts it over. For this reason, you could say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he launches into another prayer for the Ephesians. But it's fascinating. He, he stops short in the middle of his sentence. Why? 
He calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles. Paul was writing from prison in Rome. A couple of places to look at briefly. If you want to turn, turn with me. If not, you can just listen. But in the end of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse verse 20, he mentions that he has an ambassador in chains. He is physically in prison. And this is, I think, important because when we hear Paul say something like, I'm a prisoner of Christ, I think this was my inclination, was to, to first sort of spiritualize that. To first say, oh, he's a prisoner of Christ, like other places where Paul says, I am a slave of Christ. That must be what Paul means. I'm sure Paul has that in mind, but I think primarily what he has in mind, the first thing that he has in mind are the chains on him at the moment. He is a prisoner, a, a physical prisoner in Rome for the sake of the gospel. Um, verses, uh, uh, just another place to see this, in verse 21 in chapter 6, he says that he is going to send Tychicus, who is a beloved brother, to the Ephesians um, to give them an update on how he's doing. Most likely, Tychicus is the one who is carrying this letter to the Ephesians. And if you jump ahead a few epistles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. Paul suffered for the gospel by being put in prison. And for many people who were looking at Paul and Paul's ministry, you could see why they would think that is shameful. Right? Paul's out there preaching the gospel and what happens to him? He gets put in prison. He must have done something wrong. He must have gone against Caesar. He must have um, broken the law. He's thrown in prison. That's shameful, Paul. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of this, but rather suffer with me. Again, mentioning his actual imprisonment. And then again in chapter 2 in 2 Timothy verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 4 verse 12, he says, uh, mentions Tychicus again. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So I think most likely that both 2 Timothy and Ephesians are written at the same time while Paul is in prison, and he's sending these both with Tychicus to the people in Ephesus. Timothy was one of the pastors that Paul had set up, or sort of a bishop, really, in Ephesus. Paul is not, however, he's, he, uh, I think this is striking in the way that he puts it, he is not a prisoner of Caesar. Paul does not say that he is writing as a prisoner of of the Romans. Rather, he says he is a prisoner of Jesus. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The Jews' hatred of him and the message that he preached about the inclusion of the Gentiles was what had got him thrown into prison. Paul's traveling all around the known world at the time, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, and preach, he, every time he goes to a city, he goes to the Jews first, and he preaches to them about the Messiah. And some of them believe, but then many of them reject him. And so Paul says, okay, I will go then to the Gentiles. And he goes to the Gentiles and preaches the gospel to them. And there's, you know, a revival breaks out along with a riot breaking out usually as you read through the book of Acts. But there's all these churches that are being established. And the Gentiles are being welcomed in. And this makes the Jews livid. They hate Paul because of this. And so when Paul gets back to Jerusalem at the end of one of his journeys... He goes into the temple, and while he's in the temple, the Jews rise up against him and falsely accuse him, and it's because of that, that scene in Acts uh, chapter uh, 21, 
that he ends up then in prison in Rome. There's a long story there. It's wonderful to read Paul's journey from how he gets this um, all-expenses-paid journey from Jerusalem to Rome by, by Caesar. Thank you, Caesar, for the opportunity to preach the gospel to Rome. Okay, one thing, another just um, uh, thing to tie this in, Paul's journey here to Ephesus is um, one of the reasons that Paul is arrested in the temple is because he had been seen with an Ephesian walking around and they had assumed that, they had, that he had brought this Ephesian man, Trophimus, into the temple. They had seen him with this Ephesian. And so you can imagine while Paul's in Rome in chains, he has the Ephesians in mind. Right? He has the Ephesians in mind because they were the ones that he was, he was to take the gospel to, and he was bringing the Ephesians with him, bringing Trophimus along with him in his journeys. And so Paul, reminded by his chains, reminded by the chains of his peculiar calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he digresses from his prayer to again meditate on the grace of God in all of this. I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And he gets distracted again by the grace of God. And we'll see this in verses uh, 2 and following. But this is important, I think. Paul's chains, Paul's physical imprisonment, brings to the forefront of his mind the grace of God. He calls himself a prisoner, I don't think to draw any sort of attention to himself. He calls himself a prisoner because the Ephesians know about his imprisonment. And as we see at the end of this passage in verse 13, he's, he's writing to comfort them and tell them not to worry and be anxious for him. But it's his chains that bring to mind God's grace. Look at verse 2. If you indeed have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. I'm Paul. I'm a prisoner. I'm in these chains for you Gentiles. I'm in chains because of the grace of God that was given to me for you. Not only did did God give grace to the Gentiles in their salvation, but he saw fit to use Paul as the steward of, or the messenger or the dispenser of that grace, the vessel of that grace. That word there in verse 2, the dispensation, it simply means a, a stewardship. To Paul was given a stewardship or the management of the grace of God for the Gentiles. He was called to be an apostle, to be a sent one to the Gentiles. And Paul saw this very clearly from the striking way that God grabbed him on the road to Damascus. If you're familiar with the story of Paul's conversion, he's on the way to Damascus. And the reason he's going to Damascus is to find more Christians to throw in prison. To find more Christians to execute. To find more Christians to break up their families and put an end to this sect. Paul's on his way to Damascus and the Lord Jesus appears to him and blinds him. And asks him, Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was after God's people, and Jesus appeared to him and asked him why he was persecuting Jesus himself. And shortly after God saves Paul, after this conversion that Paul has on the way to Damascus, the Lord makes it very clear to Paul that he was to be the apostle 
to the Gentiles. He was to be the apostle that was going to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. God gave him a specific commission, and God gave the grace of salvation to Paul so that he might take the grace of God to the Gentiles. God gave grace to Paul, saved him, and filled him with grace so that he would go and spill that grace all over all kinds of people. He was a vessel of God's grace. Again, this is how Paul sees himself, and rightly so. And so when he's in chains, he remembers the grace of God. It's not just that he's in chains and he has to remind himself that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is gracious, that God has saved him, and so in the midst of that, he can trust in God apart from his chains. All of that's true. But I think it's striking that it appears that his very chains remind him of the grace of God. Paul has already explained the mystery that has been revealed. This is, in large part, the second half of chapter 2 that we looked at last time. The mystery is the fact that the Gentiles have been brought in to God's people and welcomed in and made part of God's family. Paul has explained this, but in this chapter, he identifies it as a mystery that has been revealed. Verses 3 and 4. After Jesus' death and resurrection, God revealed to the apostles his plan to gather together into one all things in Christ. That's what Paul says in in, uh, chapter 1. God's plan forever had been to gather all things together in one in Christ. Um, If you look at verse 3, this is a a side note, but again, I think these things are helpful. Um, The word for revelation in the Greek is where we get our word apocalypse from. And so I think that's just a helpful thing. The reason that the book of Revelation is called Revelation and why we associate that with apocalypse is because that's what the word means. The the Greek word for revelation or a revealing just simply is apocalypse. And that, I think, helps us because apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Apocalypse just means the revealing, the unveiling. I think that's helpful to keep in mind. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 3. There's a revelation that has happened. An apocalypse has happened. The Gentiles have been included. After, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, God reveals to the apostles this plan. This plan had been hidden, as Paul says in verse 5, but it had been hinted at throughout history. The, the plan in its full um, glory had been hidden from people. Paul says, hidden from the sons of men. But it had been hinted at many times. Here's a couple examples of this. Abraham had been told that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. It was never God's plan to have his chosen people of Israel and only the chosen people of Israel and not include all the nations. Here's another example. Through the people of Israel, Isaiah tells us, that um, uh, through Isaiah, God tells us that there would be a light to the Gentiles and salvation would extend to the ends of the earth. Amen. Through Israel, it's going to come through Israel. Jesus is from of the line of Judah, uh, from Jacob, from Isaac, from Abraham. So it's through Israel, but it's going from Israel into the ends of the earth. It's going to expand to encompass all nations. And so the means by which God would bring all of this about had been hidden the exact time and place and the exact way that God was going to do it had been hidden and veiled 
but it had been hinted at throughout history. And now, though, in the, in the glorious resurrection of Christ, in his ascension into heaven, the preaching of the gospel, it has been fully revealed through the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles were not just included as tagalongs, also, in, the, in this salvation, in, in God's family, but rather, Paul says, that they were, this is in verse 6, they were to be co-heirs, co-inheritors, co-members of the family of God, co-partakers of the promise in Christ. The revelation and knowledge of this mystery was given to Paul by means of God's effective power. Verse 7, you'll see that Paul here again mentions the power of God. He spent some time um, talking about this, and and we looked at this in chapter 1, the the power of God unto salvation. Uh, Paul says that he prays for the Ephesians that they would know the power of God, which is like the power that raised Christ from the dead. And he wants them to know that power. Well, it's the same power that God has given, or that that God has revealed to Paul in bringing all of the nations, all of the Gentiles, into his family, into his fold. Okay, so that's verses one through seven. Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, is distracted by the grace of God that was given to him. And he explains again that this is a mystery that has been revealed to him and given to him so that he might go and reveal it to others. Recall also, as we move into verse 8 here, recall that Paul previously prayed for the Ephesians that they would know God's calling of them, that they would know the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints and the greatness of God's power. This is all in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. So Paul's prayer for them is that they would know what he knows. It, this has all been revealed to him. And he's, his prayer for them is that they would know this. The grace of God was given to him and it was accompanied by a commission to preach this gracious gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul says also here that he was, the, he was less than the least of the saints. Why does Paul say this? Well, you'll see this in a number of different letters that Paul writes. Many of his letters actually include some sort of a statement about this, that he's the least of the saints, or less than the least of the saints, the chief of sinners, these kinds of phrases. And I think it's because Paul was aware of who he had been and of what God had to do to change him. As Saul the Pharisee, before his conversion, he had murdered Christians. He had broken up families. He had destroyed livelihoods. And he was self-righteous about it all. He did it because he thought this was God's will for him. He had blood on his hands. We're not told in Scripture how many Christians Saul had murdered or had orchestrated the murder of, the execution of, But it must have been a lot because when he's converted, by the time he's converted, he had become so notorious that for a while no Christians would receive him. They wouldn't believe for a minute that this Saul had become a believer in Jesus. Are you kidding? There's no way I'm going to welcome him into the church. Who knows who he's going to carry out of here? There's great fear of Paul, of Saul the Pharisee. And it wasn't until uh, Barnabas took a chance 
trusted him and trusted in the Lord and brought him into fellowship. But this is who Saul was. This is who Paul was. Blood on his hands, breaking up churches, breaking up families, destroying people's lives, leaving people fatherless. But now, filled with the Spirit, his calling and his desire, in verse 9, is to make all see this mystery revealed in Jesus this mystery that is that God's so that so that God's wisdom in his eternal purpose would be made known and glorified. Paul's greatest desire is to make people see, to reveal to them, to unveil to them this mystery, because it had been given to him. There was no reason that Saul the Pharisee should worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus. He hated his people, and he lived that out to the fullest. The way that Scripture talks about Paul, it's it's as though he's a dragon. He's breathing threats and murder, like a dragon breathes fire. And God takes this dragon, and he changes him in an instant. That's the power of God to salvation. Paul wants to make all of this known so that he could demonstrate, or so that God's wisdom would be demonstrated. So his eternal purpose. This is what God had planned from the beginning. The, the death of Jesus on the cross, it was not as though God was up in, in heaven, concerned and worried, wringing his hands, oh no, what went wrong? It was always part of the plan. Jesus prays to the Father in the garden, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let's do it that way and not this way, to the cross, to the grave. And God says, no. The Father says, no. This is best. And the Son says, your will be done. And He's killed. And he's crucified, he's buried, and then God raises him from the dead, and he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God and reigns over heaven and earth. And then he's given, he gives his apostles, his disciples, this glorious gospel to go and tell all of the world about it. This was God's plan from the very beginning. And Paul wants... Christians, he wants you, he wants the church to see this. He wants you to know this. This is what you need to know in order that you might be able to walk then in obedience when he says, wives, respect your husbands. Wives, I'm sorry, that's backwards. Wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives. You have to know this. You have to know God's eternal purpose for that to make sense. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's a command that Paul will give in chapter 6. But you need to know, kids, that God's eternal purpose was to bring salvation to the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, then it doesn't make any sense why you need to obey your parents. These are the things that you need to know. You need to rest on these things. These are glorious truths that if we stand on them, everything else 
starts to fit together. And it takes time as God sanctifies us and grows his church, but it's on this foundation that it grows. The real mystery, Paul, Paul's describing this mystery of how the Gentiles have been brought in, but really the, the mystery really is how can anyone have access to God? How can any of us Gentiles have access to God? But, but really, how can the Jews have access to God either before Jesus comes? How can any person, fallen as we are, really come before God? The Jews had a sense of coming near to Him through their sacrifices, but even then He was distant. The Jews couldn't come before the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. One Jew could. Once a year come into the very presence of God. They had this system of sacrifices and and worship that did bring them before Him, but God was distant. And so this is the glorious mystery that is revealed. We all have access to the Father through Christ. You can confess your sins on your own. You don't have to go to a priest You don't have to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Your prayer of confession is your sacrifice. You can draw near to the Holy Father Himself as His beloved Son and Daughter. It is through Christ alone. But if we are in Christ, then we have boldness and access with confidence, Paul says, to the Father. This is verse 12. Here's another way of of thinking of this. The eternal purpose of God, which He accomplished in Jesus, was that you might come before Him. Actually before Him, in His presence. Not just when you die and go to heaven, but here this morning. You are actually before the presence of God Almighty. You've ascended into the heavenly places, Hebrews tells us, as you gather together with the saints in worship. And so with all of this in mind, Paul gets to give, as as Paul realizes and is reminded that he gets to give this grace away. He's been given this grace. These things have been made known to him and he just gives it away everywhere he goes. And so it's because of this he tells the Ephesians, not to fret about him in prison. His chains are simply a reminder to him of God's grace. His tribulations, he says, are their glory. So he says in verse 13, Do not lose heart and my tribulations for you, my sufferings on your behalf, my sufferings for preaching the gospel to you. Do not lose heart because of this. Because... They are your glory. Paul is imitating Christ. What are Christ's sufferings for you? They are your glory. And Paul's sufferings for the Ephesians are their glory. Of course, not in exactly the same way. Paul doesn't save the Ephesians. But he's imitating his Lord and Savior. Savior, Suffering for the sake of the gospel To give that grace to those who had been far off. There's two things that I want to 
close with. And I want to, to bring to the forefront of your minds as we, as we look at this passage. I think that this helps us to see the nature of our own calling as followers of Christ. If you have been saved by grace through faith, then God has made you a fit vessel or steward of that grace. If you have been saved by grace through faith, then you, God has fashioned you into a vessel of that grace. And if he has done that, he has done that for a purpose. And that purpose is not so that you might hang on to that grace. But God has fashioned you as a vessel for that grace so that you might go and give that grace to others. The details of your obedience to this call look different from person to person. Some are called to be um, evangelists proper. Some are called to be preachers proper. Some are called to be teachers, elders. But all of us, every single one of you in this room is called to be a vessel of grace. This is one way of saying that all of you really are evangelists. The funny thing is you are an evangelist whether you want to be or not. You are an evangelist. If you've been saved by grace through faith, then you are an evangelist. Now, this doesn't mean that every conversation you have needs to be a gospel conversation. You're trying to convert somebody. But it does mean that every conversation you have should be full of grace. Grace that tastes good. We're not all given the same gifts. We're not all given the same specific calling that Paul was but we are all given the same grace. You have the same grace that was given to Paul. And what did God do through him? And Paul was nothing special such that God used him. Far from it. Murderer. Liar. Dragon. Paul was nothing special, but you were given the same grace that God gave to Paul. God's grace and the effective working of his power transformed Paul, and you were given that same grace, and God is at work in you with that same power. And this is also a comfort to you as you pray for, as we, as we did during our corporate prayer time, as you pray for the lost, as you pray for those that you love that do not know these things, that do not know the Lord Jesus, that do not know his grace. Are any of them as wicked as Paul in a, in a human sense? Have, any, have they done things as atrocious as Paul did? My guess would be not. If God can save Paul, who else? If God can save Paul, what about you? Is God's grace powerful enough to change you? To transform you? Even after you've been saved, is His grace still strong enough, powerful enough to continue to change you? The sin that you struggle against daily, that you can't shake, is God's power strong enough to deliver you from that?
recognize that you are a vessel of God's grace then in all of your interactions. I, I think this is also important as we continue to grow, as you all here continue to grow as a church body and the relationships that you have here. In a church, in families, you should expect there to be bumps. If there's not, you're really weird. Right? It's normal for there to be bumps and jostlings and bruisings and hurt feelings, disagreements. But if you're filled with grace, then what happens when you get knocked, when you get bumped at our breakfast table, dinner table, at mealtime, things get spilled all the time. And I can always tell you what was in the cup. Because it's all over the table. What are you full of? When you get knocked over, what comes out? The, the mealtime uh, analogy is, is good in another way. When the cup gets knocked over, what comes out of you? When your cup gets knocked over between you and your wife, what comes out of you? When things are really tough at work and you get bumped by your employer or your employee or your coworker, what comes out of you? You've been saved by grace. And, and you've been given His Spirit, God's Spirit. Are you full of grace? And if you're not... Well, you know what to do. Seek the Lord. You confess your sins. And you ask Him to fill you with that grace. And then you go and you give that grace away. Pour it out. You can't outgive the grace of God. And what a wonder it would be if all of us tried to. You can't outgive that. And when you feel empty, when you feel drained, because you've been giving and giving and giving and giving, perfect. Does your drained state remind you of the grace of God? Like Paul's chains reminded him of the grace of God? And that leads us then into the second thing I want to end with. So first, you are called to be a steward and a dispenser of grace. You're not called to be a reservoir of that grace. First thing. Second thing, this also instructs us in our view of whatever is going on right now in our lives. Right now in your lives. What trials are you enduring? What, what tribulations are you enduring? They might be really big trials. We prayed for a lot of people that are very sick. It might be really big trials in your relationships. There might be really trials as you, face, um, the, as you face a loss of a job. Might be trials as you face all kinds of disagreements um, with your neighbors. Might be trials even just as you're looking ahead as, as to where are we going. As a country, as a state, where are we going? What trials are you facing? They might be really small trials. They might be trials like your toy got broken by your brother. That is a trial, and you ought to see it as such. 
It's an opportunity for you to be reminded of the grace of God. It might be a trial because you're sick. Maybe it's not a, a, a life-threatening sickness. Maybe it's just that runny nose. They're not all COVID. Right? It's just that runny nose. And it bugs you and it makes you a little bit irritated and irritable. That's a trial. Maybe instead of asking what trials are you enduring, maybe we should also ask what trials are you refusing to undergo? What trials are before you? You know it's right there. And I don't want to go there. No, Lord. But if God is calling you to it, there's grace in it. What trials are you enduring? What trials are you refusing to undergo? What relationships are bumpy or hard or fraying or exploding? What hardships has God brought to you? The trials and hardships, the bumps and the knocks, the long battles against the onslaught of death, the long battles against your own sinful flesh, all of them are given as an opportunity to demonstrate and dispense the grace of God. So remember that you can boldly and with confidence come to the Father who has given you life and the promise of salvation and a glorious inheritance. Remember that you are called to be a steward and a vessel of grace. And, and God's expectation for you is that it doesn't stay inside of you. And remember, like Paul, that those trials that come, when we view them rightly, and that takes training, it takes study, it takes trust in God. But viewing them rightly reminds us of the grace of God. So come to the Father in that grace, seeking that grace, and let that grace flow out of you, as Jesus says, like streams of living water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Father, help us to see it, to know it, to take it in, and then to turn and give it away. We are an ungrateful people. We are an ungracious people. And so, Lord, change us. Convict us. Convict us of our anger, of our short tempers, of our impatience, of our lust, of our greed, of our adulterous hearts, of our murderous hearts, of our hate towards our brothers. Of all of these things, Lord, convict us of our simple ungodliness before you. And do so by filling us with your grace so that we might go and give it to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we've seen in Ephesians and elsewhere in Scripture, the church is the body of Christ. And so you all here gathered together are the body of Christ. You are come here to this table to partake of the body and blood of Christ. This is a mystery. You are the body of Christ and you're here to partake of the body of Christ. The reason we break one loaf and we eat together is as a sign that we are one loaf, that we are one body. When we dwell together as his body, this is a key part to what Jesus means when he tells us to abide in him. If we are the body and we're abiding together in unity and fellowship, then we are abiding in him. 
we abide together as his body. And Jesus tells us that when we abide in him, he will abide in us. You abide in him and he abides in you. In some ways, this is easy to see when we are gathered in worship. We sing together, we pray together, we confess together, we eat together. But shortly, you will leave here and you'll go separate ways. You must remember that as you go, you do not go alone. You still go as the body of Christ. You still go as vessels full of His grace. You go as His hands and His feet to do the work of ministry that He has called you to. You leave here every week. And our prayer is that you leave here full of Christ. So that your joy may be full. And so that you may be a vessel of that joy and of that grace as you go into your week. So come and partake of Christ and then take Him with you wherever you go. As He promised, He is always with you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So here is the charge to you. It's simply repeating the end of the sermon. If you are saved by grace through faith, then you are vessels of grace. You've been given grace. You've been given more than you need and more than you know. So be that grace everywhere that you go. And secondly, look for opportunities to remember that grace. Those trials and hardships that will come this week, those are there to remind you of God's grace. And that doesn't make sense unless you know Jesus. Hear now the benediction of your Lord from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to, pre- and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.